In the Old Testament, Moses was the divinely ordained mediator between the awesome judge of Sinai and the children of Israel. While they hid in their tents, Moses talked face to face with God and received the instructions on how to live. He faithfully delivered these to the Israelites. How did they respond? And why did the New Testament have to introduce a new mediator? These are the questions we will attempt to answer on today's Encounter with the Truth. Our study leader, Dave Wardson, gets us started by sharing an experience that he and his two older boys had while on a mission trip to Brazil. There definitely are times when a mediator can solve a potential crisis. In 1986, Jonathan and Joel and I got to go down to Brazil and we got to minister with Palavra de Vida. We started out flying into Rio de Janeiro and we had a brief layover in Rio and then we had to fly up way up to the north, way up to Recife. It was like the difference of maybe flying from New York uh, down to Miami or to be more accurate with a geographical direction, it would be like flying from Miami up to New York. And Lasagnas had arranged for us to meet with one of his friends and so we met there and went over to his house. We met in the airport in Rio and then we went over to his house and had a really good lunch. And we were thinking it was the United States. You know in the United States if your flight is with Delta or American Airlines you arrive about a half an hour before time. If you're like me you arrive about 10 minutes. You carry all your stuff on the airplane with you and you just jump on and go. And I was thinking that's the way it would be like uh, down in Rio. Well, we arrived at the airport about 20 minutes before the airplane took off, and there's line after line after line after line of people. I mean, it looked like everybody in all of Brazil was flying. We found out later that that was so, because inflation had tailed off a little bit, and for the first time on what was equivalent to their spring break, everybody was flying. And so we waited in line, and we waited in line, we waited in line, we got right up to the counter, I handed him our ticket, handed him Jonathan's ticket, handed him Joel's ticket, and he goes, no, there's no room for you on the flight. I said, what do you mean there's no room for us on the flight? They said, there's no room. I said, I have a ticket. I mean, we paid for this. He said, there's no room on the flight. And I learned a big lesson about South America. Tickets don't mean anything. Now, there were some businessmen from, uh, you know, like from New York. They're all dressed up with their fancy suits, and they just went right on. And they also reached into their wallet and pulled out a little bit of you-know-what, and they just went right on their way. But here we were sitting in the Rio airport, and I was supposed to start a pastor's conference in so many hours. How in the world will we ever get from Rio up to Recife? Well, we called back to Word of Life, and they said, we've got a special deal for you. And they called one of the, one of the executives for the Brazilian airline. And they called the executive up, and he said, no problem at all. You just go down, wait in line again. When you get up, you just mention my name, and you'll get right on the airplane. Sure enough, we waited in line, same deal again. They said, there's no room, there's no room. And we just mentioned this name. And sure enough, they said, right this way. We got right on the airplane. 
We went up to Recife. I did the conference, spent about a week ministering to pastors, kind of in the jungle. It was really a neat experience. Jonathan and Joel got to play with monkeys and just about everything else, and we played soccer in torrential rain. I found out that Brazilians love to play soccer in just torrential downpours. And at the end of the week, everyone was saying, you guys will never get back. You'll just never get back to Sao Paulo. All the flights are completely filled up. And I said, no problem. No problem. We'll be able to take care of this. Well, we had to leave at about 3 o'clock in the morning because that was the only way we could get on. But sure enough, we mentioned the name of our special mediator the executive for the Brazilian airline, and sure enough, about 3 o'clock in the morning, we got on the plane. We almost got on the wrong plane and ended up in Manaus instead of in Sao Paulo because we didn't understand Portuguese very well, but by the grace of God and by the gift of this mediator, we ended up back in Sao Paulo and were able to do the next conference. I learned the power of a mediator. Think of all the times in your life when you use a mediator. You're estranged from your lover. You're going with somebody in high school, and the whole thing goes to pot. What do you do? You use a third party. You use a third representative. Usually everything gets botched up with a representative and they get all the messages confused and it makes the problem worse. But we all know with estranged lovers, we use third parties. We also know if you're a salesperson, like when I was selling books out in Southern California, when I went to a door, I would use mediators. In fact, I would use several of them. I would say that Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Brown, Mrs. McGillicuddy, Mrs. Snapplegooch, whatever name I could think of, and I would try to name off about every person that you would possibly know. Like if I was trying to get into your door, I would, I would list off the, the, the wives of all the elders and deacons. And I would be telling you, you can trust me. You can let me in the door. I won't kill you or something. I would use representatives. When you get in trouble with the law, when you're accused of a crime, you go to a lawyer. What do you go to a lawyer for? To represent you, to be your mediator, to be your person before the court of justice, to bring your case before them. And I want to ask you, who are you going to use for your mediator before the court of divine justice? How are you going to get in? You see, as we sit here, the big question we need to ask ourselves is, how can I be sure that I can get close to God? It's one of the most pressing questions of our age. And it's a question that's very confused and very much ignored, but it's always underneath the surface. How am I going to be sure that I can get close to God? Now, most of us have the idea that God is kind of like George Burns, you know, kind of like George Burns smoking a cigar in Oh God with John Denver. You know, we think that's what God is like. It's kind of the impotent, doting grandfather. And it's the popular viewpoint of God. You know, God is some, some weak rocking chair, kind of a white-haired grandfather that somehow will let you bumbling into heaven. That's kind of a modern approach to God. Another approach to God is that God is kind of like the sweet mother in the sky. You know, he's the rocking, gentle mother. All those warm, gushy, romantic feelings you have about how your dad, you know, he wouldn't really let you off, but somehow mom would appeal to him and somehow you bumbled through and were able to, to be forgiven. You see, the idea of God in our culture is kind of a mix of George Burns, this old, doting, hundred-year-old man that seems to go on forever and ever, that somehow will just let sin get by. And the other concept is this nice, gushy, kind of a rotund, warm, flabby mother figure that somehow is going to get us through. We want to contrast that 
with a revelation of what God is really like. I want you to turn your Bibles to the end of the Ten Commandments. We have now come through several weeks, and in these weeks we have studied together the moral requirements, the foundational, complete ethical requirements for getting close to God. For living right with God. If somebody asks you, how can I live right with God, where do you go? You go to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments express in just ten simple words. Ten simple commands, the A to Z of how to live right with God. Look at verse 22 as we come to the end of the Ten Commandments. These are the commands the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22 which the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain, from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to them. Let's look at that verse. These are the commandments. These are the authoritative statutes. This is the moral law. That's the idea. The Lord God, through his representative Moses, is saying, you want to know how to live right? You want to know how to live on the right path? These are the commandments. What an incredible summary of all of ethics. What an incredible summary of all of of life and how we should live together. In ten simple words, we have learned how to live right in a vertical relationship with God and how to live right in a vertical relationship with one another in just ten simple commands. You see, philosophers of ethics, I mean, they write book after book after book. If you read Immanuel Kant, almost about 1% of us will be able to understand what Immanuel Kant is saying. The rest of the 99% of us won't have the foggiest idea what this great German ethicist is trying to write. When philosophers write about ethics, it gets longer and longer and more confusing and more confusing. But God summarizes it in just ten words, and the Son of God said you can summarize it in just two. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. It's the whole duty of man. These are the commandments. And so we get to the end of these ten pronouncements, and God the Father says, these are the commandments. And I want you all to face that. I need to face it. You see, in our culture, we don't think these are the commandments. And if you don't think that, or as you listen to the media and you listen to different people, you need to ask yourself, by what basis are they saying these are not the commandments? And what we're learning in the book of Deuteronomy is that the Lord God of creation, the one that designed us to run a certain way, he is saying these are the commandments. And 51% can vote all they want to. These are not the commandments. You can have a vote. Is adultery all right? If 51% says yes, our culture says, then it's all right. No, it isn't. Why? Because God said, these are the commandments. I want you to notice it says he added nothing more. It says God added nothing more. The ten words thundered forth from Mount Sinai, and God said, I have nothing to add. Now, we're going to have the rest of the book, which is going to be kind of an extrapolation. It's going to further our insight. In fact, all the rest of this book is going to be like an interpretation of how these Ten Commandments work out specifically in the life of ancient Israel. But I want you to know that the Lord God of heaven says nothing needs to be added. The Ten Commandments spell out in principle, in foundational moral teaching, all that we need to know about how to live together and how to live with our God. These are the commandments, and you need to add nothing to it. 
We read in those verses that God took the time to write on two tablets of stone. You say, Dave, what's going on there? In the ancient Near East, if you were conquered, for example, say by a Hittite king, the Hittites lived up in what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, for many, many years in archaeology, we felt that there was no such thing as a Hittite. Uh, the belief was that the Bible just kind of invented Uriah the Hittite. And, and when it talked about Hittites and other nebulous passages of the Old Testament, they were a nebulous people that never really existed. Until we dug a little bit deeper with our spades and the archaeologists uncovered a whole civilization that rivaled Egypt and that rivaled Babylon. The Hittites had what they called a sincerity treaty. The king of the Hittite empire would roll over a city and would conquer them. Or to make the, the analogy even closer to what we, have in, in the, in what we have in this passage here in Deuteronomy, maybe a small city to the, to the east of the Hittites would come under siege by another kingdom. And this little bitty city would write to the great Hittite emperor and they would say, would you please come and deliver us? We are going to get squashed like a bug and, and we don't have any way to defend ourselves. And, and we appeal to the great Caesar and we appeal to the great king. Will you come and deliver us? And the Hittite empire would come rolling in with his mighty army and he would crush the opposition and would set this little tiny city free. But then the king would send his representative the Hittite emperor would send his representative, and that representative would spell out the history of the Hittite king's faithfulness to that little city. He would spell out how the king heard their cries for help. He would spell out how that king came with great power and with great might, and the Hittite armies crossed the opposition. And then it would call, it would engrave upon stone the obligation of that city to now live under the authority, under the jurisdiction of the Hittite Empire. And the city would submit to that. And the Hittite emperor, through his representative, would, would leave one copy carved on a stone tablet to be put in the sacred place of the delivered city. And the Hittite emperor would take another copy and he would put it in his sacred place. And it became a binding, a binding covenant of relationship between the Hittite emperor, empire and this little city that had been delivered. Now God is so loving to us that he knew that all over the ancient Near East, they understood this idea of a covenant treaty. And so the Lord God of heaven stooped down and communicated to the children of Israel in a way that they could understand, he carved, just like a Hittite Caesarean, just like a Hittite king, he carved on one tablet of stone the ten words, the binding foundational agreement of the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. And he gave a copy to Moses. And then he kept a copy for himself, just like the Hittite king. And all the people could understand that they were now coming under the sovereignty the rule of this great king. And so as we look at these verses at the conclusion of the Ten Commandments in verses 22, just verse 22 there, highlights this representation, this covenant relationship between God as the great king and the people of Israel. Now I want to ask you a question. Whose jurisdiction are you under? Which king do you submit to? Who guides your life? Who are you responsible to? And if we put the story of the Bible together, the, the story of the Bible is that God wants to be the great king of our life. 
You see, he's the creator. He's the Lord. He's the ultimate ruler. You see, the Hittite emperors were really ruthless, and they were immoral, and many times they would break their covenants. They were not kings that could be relied upon. But the great king of Israel, the Lord God of heaven, you just sang, great is thy faithfulness. When you sang that song deep in your soul, if you sang it from the depths of your being, you were expressing, Lord, you're my great king. I'm going to live my life for you. I'm going to, I have one life to live, and I want to live under your jurisdiction. I want to follow your principles. There's some young children that are saying, I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments through the power of Christ. I'm going to build my life on that kind of ethics. When I go away to college and university, I might be attacked about that moral standard. I might be attacked about who God is and what he's like, but I'm going to go for it. I'm going to build my life on the authority of the Lord God of heaven. He's going to be my king. And 30 years of time can go by. And you'll walk down that pathway of life. And all you need to ask yourself, where do the paths go? One person says, God's going to be the king of my life. Another person says, no, someone else, some other thing is going to be the ruler of my life. You can make that decision, but you can't control where the paths go. And that's what Moses is facing the children of Israel with. I want you to notice something else. It says that as God revealed these words, it was from a great mountain. There was fire, there was a cloud, and there was deep darkness. And you say, man alive, Dave, what in the world is going on? It's glory. It's the star treatment. It's being bowled over by tremendous, tremendous, awesome revelation. Let's read a little bit further and see how the people responded in verse 23. Moses said, when you heard the voice out of the darkness, can you imagine? Join the children of Israel at the foot of this gigantic, this gigantic mountain. It's kind of like Big Ben country, a little bit from what Joel described to me. And Sinai looks a little bit like that barren desert kind of a land. Not many trees, in fact, no trees in Sinai, just this rugged mountain peaks, only the mountains are quite a bit higher down there in the Sinai Peninsula. So you've got this barren, desert, gigantic mountain. And you want to picture a thunderstorm when it gets really, really dark, only much darker than a thunderstorm. You want to picture suddenly like flashes of lightning. You want to to hear the thunder. And suddenly as as a group of people, two million people at the base of this mountain, suddenly you hear rumbling forth from the mountains, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto yourselves any graven image. Thou shalt not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that your days may be long upon the land that I will give to you. Honor your father and your mother. And these ten words come thundering forth from Mount Sinai. It was an incredible experience. It's an experience of God that that modern America, including modern evangelical believers, we know very little about it. I want you to think of darkness. And I want you to think about a time in your life when you have been in total darkness. Absolute, total darkness. Darkness invades you. It scares you to death. Remember when you were a little kid? You see, we kind of get over the fear of darkness as we grow older. But when you're a little kid, how many of you still like to have the light on when you go to bed? How many of you kids say, Mom, leave the light on in the hallway? Come on, kids, confess. All right? Why do you do that? 
Because the dark is kind of a scary, scary thing. When we were traveling in the northwest, right near Mount St. Helens, and to add to the creepiness of it, the surface all around St. Helens looks like the moon, kind of like Sinai. Because the volcano blew half the mountain away and, and just leveled all the trees, and you've got just nothing but devastation all around. But right near Mount St. Helens, there's what they call the eighth cave. It's one of these funnel tubes. And we went hiking down that cave. We called Speed Uncling. We went down in there with our lanterns and our flashlights and everything. And we got right in the middle of this two-hour hike down this cave. And we turned off all of our lights and the darkness invades us. Now, all of you can remember some experiences. I've shared that experience with you in the past. And that's one of the experiences that drives home to me the darkness. Darkness is a scary thing. And I want you to think about this darkness. Darkness is like a separation. If all the lights go out and it becomes inky, inky black in here, none of us can see each other anymore. And we grope around and we, we start to live in a world of just reaching forth with touch. And that's a scary thing because darkness separates us. Darkness separates us. I was reading a book this past week on Barabbas. And it described these, these slaves that, in, that by the Roman authorities were put down in the mines. And they spent their whole life living in the bowels of the earth, never seeing the light of day. And the author compared it to the realm of the dead, the realm of total darkness, of no light, of never seeing green fields anymore, of never seeing vegetation in springtime, just living in an eerie, dark blackness. And that's the darkness of Mount Sinai. Another awe-inspiring symbol that's used in this is the fire. Somehow, the whole Mount of Sinai looked like it was on fire. Now, what does fire do to us? I think I can communicate a little bit about that feeling. Is if all of you will go down to North Texas Cement Company, they've got a kiln. And up in the control tower, I think you can still do it, you can look through these windows because the guys that are in control of the kiln have to watch those computers and they have to watch the temperature very carefully inside that kiln. And you can go up there and you can look down in there and, and there's just this fiery, consuming flame. I mean, it just melts things like that. What is it, Wally, over 2,000 degrees? Well over 2,000 degrees. And it's just an incredible experience. And I don't know if you've ever been able to, to see a consuming fire. And you can hear that hiss and, that, and feel that tremendous blast of heat. That's scary. It puts a tremor in your soul. In the Bible, this idea of a consuming fire is like an incredible justice, an incredible righteousness that purges away everything that's evil, everything that taints of breaking the Ten Commandments is totally consumed. And that's what the children of Israel were trembling before at Mount Sinai. It says that there was darkness. There was the whole mountain. It was a fiery, awesome, consuming flame. It also says there was a mist. There was a cloud. One of the Jewish uh, scholars interpreted the word that's used for the cloud like the whole mountain was in like a, a mistiness, like a fog. Just going up to Joel's soccer game that he played up in uh, just close to Dallas uh, the other night, it was foggy. And you drive up 67 and the fog descends upon the highway and you lose your way. You can't see anything. 
And it's scary. It's scary to be in a fog. If you're a pilot, one of the worst things that can happen is to have that dew point so close. I think there's very few of us American believers. You see George Burns and a fat, flabby Mother Nature? They don't have a lot of fire. They don't have a lot of thunder and darkness. They don't have a lot of that awesome terror when you're faced with incredible justice, incredible power, incredible might. You see, one of the greatest needs of the American church is we don't fear God anymore. We don't reverence him. We forget that he's not a doting grandfather. He's not some flabby mother nature that you worry about your butter. He is the God of Mount Sinai. He is the God of Mount Sinai. But as we will learn in our next study time together, he is also the God of Mount Calvary. Why did God have to send another mediator to replace Moses in the first century? How did this new Moses deal with the rupture our sin has created in our relationship with the holy, righteous God of Sinai? Today, we have learned that God revealed through Moses a complete moral foundation for living. We have talked about God's awesomeness, but we must also learn how to get through the terror and discover God's love. Before our next time together, you might want to read John 1, 1 through 18, and then join us for the conclusion of this study titled, The Mediator.